In fact, you learn a lot more from failure than you do from success, because those are the things that really make you stronger. You know, success can be dangerous. You know, you just assume sometimes that you're going to be successful at everything you do. You become a bit arrogant. But I've learned in my life that the only thing that you get from looking back at your past success is a stiff neck. Welcome to another edition of Expedition Business, where we talk to inspiring South African entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of their business journey and how on earth they managed to keep the flame of business adventure burning. Of course, facing your day with a smile is sometimes the toughest thing you have to do. My name is Christelle Rosley Fenter, your host and the one lucky enough to be talking to Ian Fur, who some people refers to as the Jewish Richard Branson. But before I introduce Ian to you, I would like to remind you to subscribe, like, comment and share this podcast with as many of your friends and family as possible. Without your help, we cannot continue to share the amazing stories of our South African entrepreneurs. But back to why we are here today. Ian Fur is the definition of a serial entrepreneur. He started the retail chain Kmart, not the American one, which was sold to Edcon. He started Priority Records, which was sold to Jive Records in the UK, and then there was labeling before he dived into the world of Brazilians and Hollywoods and called it brand new culture. But at the end of the day, when the sun sets in the west, nothing excites him more than the word culture-nearing. Welcome to Expedition Business. It is an amazing mm-hmm. privilege to have you here. No, fine. Thanks very much for having me, Christelle. I appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Ian, you have achieved so much in your life. Do you ever feel just a little bit insulted that most people know you from your days at Sorbet? No, not at all. I think think that, that all the other things really culminated in the Sorbet brand, and that obviously became the most well known of the various businesses that I was in. But yeah, no, I, no it, there's lots of history here in terms of the various uh, entrepreneurial ventures that I've done, and you've mentioned a few of them. Uh, and it all culminated at Sorbet, and, and I've just been working all those years on trying to understand people in business and leadership and things like race relations and culture. Those are the areas that I've focused throughout my life. So even though I was running and starting businesses, that was always my real interest and fascination was how to build a strong culture in a business that would ultimately deliver fantastic customer service. Mm-hmm. And that, and Sorbe was a big experiment in making sure that all these things that you believe in does actually work in a company. Right, correct, yeah. So when I started Sorbet, it was a little bit different to the others because the other businesses, I had identified an opportunity and then slowly worked towards making them 
successful over a period of time. And what I normally did was, was to focus on the people only a little bit later on in the growth of the business. But this time, by the time I got to Sorbet, I had developed what I call the cultureering framework, which is really a framework of how to build a strong culture in a diverse workforce that delivers the platform for great service. So I had this framework already before I started Sorbet. All I needed at the time was a business to implement my framework. And that just turned out to be Sorbet at the end of the day. I certainly wasn't looking to get into the beauty industry. I know very little mm -hmm. about the beauty industry at that, that time. I knew even less. Um, and, and as you say, I had to learn about Brazilians and Hollywoods and things like that. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that a Brazilian was a person who lived in Brazil. Uh, and, and so, so I, uh, then found that business and someone told me there was a gap in the market. I went to have a look. And I decided, okay, so it's going to be the beauty industry. And I had my culture, which I implemented literally from day one. We started to buy up a few beauty salons, uh, five or six of them over a period of about a year, and then rebranded them and launched Sorbet in uh, August 2005. Mm -hmm. And so from day one, I was doing the induction training for every single person in the company. And I continued to do that throughout the 15 years that I was involved at Sorbet. And mm -hmm. um, I did all the induction training for everybody that ever joined. That was over three and a half thousand people. Wow. And, and it was really important that everybody understood our culture and, and, and what we were about and what were our purpose and our values and, and how we were going to deliver this great service. Mm -hmm. So those are the things yeah, that, that I, I did to start the business, essentially. Just quickly, going back to that person that told you about the gap in the market, as far as I know, that was, you were having a massage at the time, and that was your yes. massage therapist. That's right, yeah, she was my massage therapist. I was having a nice, legitimate massage, <laughs> uh -huh. and, and she, she was talking to me about this business, and she said, why don't you get into the beauty industry? And I, I laughed at her at first because I'm so far removed from the beauty industry and I certainly don't look like someone who comes from the beauty industry. So I uh, said, yeah, okay, well, you know, there's no ways that we can do something like that. And then she said, yeah, but there's a gap in the market. And I asked her if there was a market in the gap. Uh -huh. And she said, yes, there is, because there are no beauty salon chains national chains in South Africa is not even one. And so that that piqued my interest. And I thought, okay, let me see what we can do here. I did a little bit of investigation and turned out she was right. There were no branded chains in South Africa. And that then became the objective. Um, most people at first thought that I was crazy. And I asked people, why are there no chains in South Africa? And Nobody could give me a coherent answer, so I had to go and find out for myself. And I did find out fairly quickly, actually. And the reason that they don't have these changes is because to be able to deliver consistent service in that industry across a whole chain, across a national chain in the country, um, is very, very difficult. Mm. Uh, so because of the the personalised sort of 
features of that type of, of service. You know, and you're doing mm. you're doing facials and massage and waxing and nails. It's very personal, and um, to get a, a consistent level of service delivery is very difficult. And that was our biggest challenge. And the only way we could possibly do that was by creating a very strong culture. Um, and from the Sorbet point of view, any of them could have come in and copied us. They could copy our, our treatments, they could copy our retail products, they could copy our pricing, they could copy the look and feel of the store. They could copy virtually everything. The only thing they couldn't copy was our culture. And that, that that became our competitive advantage. Sorbet, there were 225 franchised salons across the country, the largest beauty salon chain in, in Africa and probably one of the largest in the world. And so it was all because of that competitive advantage that we were given by our very strong culture. And that suited you like a glove because that's what you were working on. That's exactly what we were working on, yes, indeed. So why did you sell Sorbet? Okay, that's a good question. I uh, I actually prefer to, to start and build things rather than run them. So by the time that I sold Sorbet, you know, it was a very large business. The total turnover of all the stores was over a billion rand. And that wasn't my strength running large companies and large corporates. So I felt it was time to move on and start something new. Okay. Just quickly going back to the very beginning of your story, where you famously left Wits University with only a few months still graduation to get yeah. to start in the music industry. Mm. It didn't seem like at the time you believed in education that much when you were 21 years old. Do you, have you changed your mind on the value of education for entrepreneurs in the meantime? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, I, I think education is very important. I'm just not sure that theory is important. So I, my education came from life experience and actually doing the stuff rather than learning about it from books. And so that, that was really, you know, at the time, and even now, I have no regrets that I didn't have a degree. In, you know, I, I got a pretty mediocre matric, and that's it. That's all I've got, basically. And, and then the rest was learned literally on the job. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. So what, what's important now is when I'm consulting and coaching other companies, that I have that track record, which get, I suppose gives me some sort of credibility because I've actually done the things that I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm not just theorizing about them. Living example of what works and what doesn't work. Correct, yes, well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Ian, but still on the topic of education, you grew up in a very entrepreneurial family with your dad, Ken Fur that made yes. massive strides in the furniture business. How did that Correct. impact you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I, I learned from a very early age about stuff. You know, I was the youngest of five children, four boys and a girl. Mm -hmm. And my father was, was always talking about business. So I started picking up little things when I was young. And particularly the one thing I learned a lot from him, even in my youth, 
was the importance of service, of customer service. And, and he, he used to go on and on about that. And then later on, when he was one of the founders, there were a few of them, he was one of the founders of Russell Furnishes. Mm -hmm. And then he also was the man who introduced Joshua Dorr to yes. South Africa. The yeah. uncle in the so furniture he, business. Yes, but I had a father in the furniture business. So, <laughs> that, <laughs> so yeah, so I learned a lot from him. And then my older brothers were also entrepreneurs. And so I kind of went in that direction. You know, it was a natural thing to do. Uh, because everyone else in my family was all doing similar kind of things. Mm -hmm. So would you say that having your dad as an entrepreneur has had a massive impact on your whole history as an entrepreneur? Yes, I would say so. But interestingly, because my older brother, my oldest brother, was almost 11 years older than me, he was the one that I, that I went into business with, and he taught me probably more than my father did. Okay. Yeah, so he was the one who started Kmart with me together, and, and we worked together for a long time, although I was actually running the business, and he was, like, supporting it. He had his own business at the time. But I learned a lot from him as well. And that would be Rodney. Rodney, that's Rodney. Okay, yeah. but you also worked with Lawrence. Lawrence was the one, you know, he was the middle brother, and he moved over to Australia fairly early on in, in his life. So I worked a little bit with him, but much more with Rodney. We also owned the Lion Park. I don't know if you know yes, the Lion Park yes, in, yes. in Johannesburg. Yeah. So him and I owned that business as well. We bought that on an auction in 1999 and ran it, to, although I wasn't running it there myself. He was there mainly, but we, together we ran that business for about 20 years and then only sold it quite recently. I remember a story where you were wondering how on earth you're going to pay for that line park that you have just bought on an auction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, when he came to me, I didn't even know that he had bought it on the auction. He uh, came to me, you know, we well, phoned me, I should say, rather, one day. And he said, listen, we've just bought the Lion Park. And I was shocked. I said, which one of us is we? And he said, you know, both of us, we've just got, we bought the Lion Park. And I thought, well, how are we going to pay for this? And he said, well, I don't know, we'll, we'll work it out. It'll come out of our Kmart business, which was then called Supermart. Yes. And yeah, eventually we managed it and it was great to run that business. Uh, you know, it was really uh, wonderful. We all very interested in wildlife and so we we really enjoyed that and of course we had a lot of uh, celebrities over the years that have, uh, came to visit it was one of the biggest tourist destinations in johannesburg the line park yeah. is it not still one of the biggest tourist destinations I, I i think it is yeah it's definitely within the top three absolutely yeah. i can remember that was one of the major attractions that I took our exchange students to a couple of ah. years ago. That's what they wanted to see, the Lion Park. Yeah, exactly. And and we moved it. It was it was bought in an old location, but in 2016 we moved it and created a much more uh, sort of upmarket type of park than what we had before. Yeah. I went to that one. But yes. Ian, just getting back to Kmart, does the yeah. whole 
story with Kmart and the Kmart brand had anything to do with you making sure that you trademark culturing? <laughs> yes, good question. So I didn't know much when we started Kmart. I was 22 years old, so I knew nothing about nothing. And so we we were going to open this business called Kmart, and I just thought, well, let's just use their name and also their logo, which was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we learned. Yeah, it was kind of a bitter lesson, but I suppose it's like school fees. Um, and then about, uh, I think I can't remember. About twelve years later, they came from America and they took us to court for the use of their name. And we thought that we could win the case because we had been using the name for twelve years already. Uh-huh. Um, but they won, and we had to change it to Supermart, which wasn't a major issue. Uh-huh. Supermart also continued to be a big business until we sold it to Edcon mm-hmm. in 2002. And then they rebranded that business and called it Jetmart as part of their jet division. Yeah. Just quickly before you sold it, there was also somewhere along the line a liquidation that was imminent and where you almost lost absolutely everything that you had at that point in time. How on yes. earth did you get through all of that and still smiling? <laughs> yeah. At at the time of the liquidation, I I wasn't in the business. I was running a record company at that stage. But but I was still a partner in the business. And and it went into liquidation at the end of nineteen eighty five after all the consumer boycotts when there was a mm-hmm. lot of unrest. Mm-hmm. The consumer boycotts really put a lot of pressure on us at the end of 1985, and we just couldn't carry on. And and so my brother closed the business down. But because I was a partner, I also went into the liquidation. And we all ended up insolvent, which was an interesting journey. And we had to start again from scratch. And then a bit later, we managed to buy back the business, the, the, the supermarket mm-hmm. business. And then we, we we rebuilt it, and so and then and then ultimately sold it to Edcon. So it was an interesting journey, and it's it taught you get lots of lessons in life, you know. And each one of them teaches you a lot. In fact, you learn a lot more from failure than you do from success, because those are the things that really make you stronger. You know, success can be dangerous. You know, you just assume sometimes that you're going to be successful. At everything you do, you become a bit arrogant. But I've learned in my life that the only thing that you get from looking back at your past success is a stiff neck. And and, and that's it. (laughs) I think you've also uh, said at some point that the best thing that could have happened to you was for liquidation. Yes, it it was because we managed to buy the business back at, at half price. So we bought the stock at, at 50 cents in the rand and we sold it you know, at normal price. So the profitability turned around dramatically and, uh, and then it continued to build from there. So it really worked out well for us. Something that interests me is because you've mentioned that sometimes people think going into entrepreneurship is just all about success, but Unfortunately, that's not how it works, and we all go through lots of dramas. But how do you still stay smiling through ordeals like this? 
Yeah, well, look, I can tell you another ordeal that we went through, another failure of mine, uh, was when we tried to open Sorbet in the UK. And that was a total disaster. So, you know, again, I talk about my own arrogance there, where I just assumed that what worked, you know, so well in South Africa would automatically work well in the UK. <laughs> but I was horribly mistaken. Um, the markets were different. Uh, the, the quality of the treatments was different. Everything was different. We just assumed that we would come in and people would flock to us. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't work like that. So that was quite a costly mistake. But again, it was a great learning lesson. And, and, we, and we learned a lot. And then you just carry on, you know. Winston Churchill once said that the definition of success is moving from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm. And so I will always try and keep a smile on my face regardless of what's happening. That is so, so true. But speaking of your failures in the UK, that was actually one of my next questions. So Bay to me sounds like a big fairy tale business adventure where everything yes. fell into place with no stresses and strains whatsoever. <laughs> Not quite. The first four years were, were difficult because we had wanted to start the business you know, with a franchise model and we couldn't franchise. So we had to open eventually 22 stores, company-owned stores, and, and we needed to get money for that. A lot of it was my own money from the sale of the of the business to Edcon, the previous business, Supermart. And so we, we had to open our stores. It was very, very expensive and we struggled. So we didn't make any money for four and a half years at Sorbet. Okay. And there, and, and there were many times when I was literally looking over the precipice and somehow scraped through and we had to put in money every single month just to be able to pay the wages and all of that stuff. And then eventually in 2009, one woman who was a guest of ours in our Northcliffe branch, um, she came, she said, you know, I think I'd like to franchise this business. And that was the, the whole turning point, basically. That was the game changer. And then from there, we managed to sell all of our company stores to franchisees. And, and, and then the business turned around quite dramatically on that basis. As I say, the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> exactly. So something that interests me is how many massages have you had through all of this? Not nearly enough, Christelle. <laughs> Not nearly enough. You know, it's like that. It's, it's like the shoemaker who doesn't wear shoes. It was always there and it was always available. And I did go from time to time, but not nearly enough. And I really enjoyed massages. But, you know, you get caught up in the work and, and that's it. And I, I was very, very focused at Sorbet on the people side. So people ask me, how much time did you spend on, on people and culture? And I kind of did a rough calculation that it was at least 50% of my time was spent on culture. And I had my family there, which was really fantastic. All three of my children, my niece, my daughter-in-law, they were all there and a couple of other partners. But that was probably one of the most rewarding periods of my life is 
watching my children take on senior roles in the business. Uh, my, my one daughter was the group marketing manager. My son was, her twin brother was, uh, was head of operations. And my younger daughter was franchisee marketer. So they all had big roles to play. And that was really one of the, of the great joys of my business life was working with them. And I suppose all fun and no stresses and strains working with family. Well, yeah, I, I think, I mean, most people are, are petrified of that because they think it's going to cause drama. But I, I was very fortunate. We had very, very little drama with that. Everyone got on well. We worked well together. As long as we didn't do the same jobs, each person had a different role. It's when you overlap with, with roles that you start to have uh, disagreements and stuff. And so, yeah, from from the time that the first two came, the, the twins, the older ones, uh, in 2009 they started. This was the year when we started to turn around. And then the other one joined in 2012. And the three of them became a very integral part of the business. And some of your children still work with you today. My son does. Yeah, he he works with me, and and my daughter who lives in the UK, she's she's a what what do you call a digital marketer. Mm -hmm. She's living there, so so she does that. And my son just helps on a, on a part time basis because he's got his own work. So I've got two of them with me. Yeah. But just quickly, as far as I can remember, your daughter had a bit of a flip out with service that she received, and that led to your whole service policy. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was an, an interesting one because we we were very 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 customer focused. We did things that no one else did. For example, we would say, you know, we had big signs in our stores. Anyone that's been to Sorbet will probably still see them there. That says, if you're not happy with your treatment, you don't have to pay. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought we were crazy about that, uh, doing that. That we would that. Ultimately, nobody would pay. Everyone would want free treatments. But it didn't work like that. In fact, by the time I left, we were doing about 400,000 beauty treatments a month. And, so uh, of, and of those, probably not more than 100 were refunded. So it's a tiny, tiny percentage. But it was a massive, and it added huge credibility to, to our business. And so we, we were... In, you know, insane and, and completely obsessed about about customer service. Um, and so one day my daughter went into one of the clothing stores and she had really terrible service because she wanted to exchange a product. They wouldn't do it. And she came home and wrote the policy. It wasn't the beginning of the policy, but it added on to our policy to say that you can bring anything back, anything, even if it's damaged or half used or you don't like it anymore or it's not working anymore, or you need the money for movies instead, or, <laughs> or you don't, or yes. you don't like the packaging and it doesn't, you know, it's, it clashes with your bathroom colors, whatever uh -huh. it does, it, it didn't matter. If you wanted to return it, we would take it back. And then at the end, she said, you can bring back anything, especially your business. Oh. And that, and that was a, you know, a really powerful statement that day. Do you use it in your consultancy company still today? Yes, very much so. So when we consult, we, we never sign contracts. 
because I, I think that, that signing a contract makes people feel obliged even if they're not happy. Mm-hmm. So, so we don't sign contracts. If, if the, the client is unhappy with us, they can terminate at any time. So there's no obligation to continue if they're not happy. So our, our philosophy at Sorbet and now again at Hatch is, uh, you know, we're only happy if you are type of thing. Super inspirational. But if we get to the question of what makes you feel on top of the world, would amazing service delivery be one of them? And people coming service back. Service delivery would be one thing, yes. The other thing that's been a big part of my life, which we haven't mentioned yet, is, is my whole fascination with race relations. Mm-hmm. So from a very early stage, on right in the early businesses, I became interested in how we could build a strong culture in, in, the, in the very diverse and polarized society. And working in that area and seeing where people start coming together in what we call racial healing exercises, that's very rewarding for me. It's, it's one of my real passions in life is to try and build this country again and give everybody in one way or another equal opportunities to be successful and to get access to the economy. So that's been a very important driving part of, of my life. And it, it was the same at, at Sorbet. We did the same thing. We, we really went out of our way to try and make the staff representative of the demographics of South Africa. And happy to say we were quite successful with that. And so that, that gives me a lot of pleasure. The other thing I suppose is, is, is just to be able to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, I've always felt that success should be measured by the, by the impact that you have on other people's lives. Not, it's not about money. Never has been, never will be. You don't go into business to make money. You go into business to serve the needs and wants of other people. And if you can do that well, then the money will follow. It will always follow. You've got to put service first and then reward second and that's been the big philosophy of mine from day one um is that you, know, you come to work to serve mm. not to make money mm. and if you serve well the money will follow Ian, just while you were talking about race relations i remember a story where one of your managers that you've put in charge of your store you found was the person who were actually demonstrating against you. How on earth do you get through that? Yeah, that was the early days. That was in the Kmart days when I was just really learning, trying to understand how to manage people of a different race. I mean, I was the only white person in the business. The staff were all black and the customers were all black. So it was a, a real baptism of fire there for me. Mm-hmm. And I had and I had identified this one young guy and he I mean, I was very young myself. I said I was 22 years old when I started that business. And you know, I was just too young and too white and too naive to really know what was going on. And so I identified him. He was one of our better workers, and I made him a supervisor and, and with, with a promise to be a manager at some point in time. And um, it turned out that when there were these consumer boycotts where they were handing out pamphlets in the street, you know, uh, boycotting white-owned stores. 
Mm. Um, it turned out that one of our staff was handing these things out in the street and it turned out to be him. His name was Ralph. Oh, and so Ralph was, was busy trying to promote a boycott of our own store. And that was really quite, uh, you know, it's a shock to my system. Mm -hmm. I felt, uh, I felt, you know, terribly betrayed. And I called him in. I was ready to fire him because you could fire people in those days without any problem. I was ready to fire him and he was ready to be fired as well. He just assumed that was going to happen. Uh -huh. And then I said, I said, how could you do this to me? You know, after all I've tried to do for you and I've given you this role and I gave him a whole story. And he said, you know, thank you. I appreciate what you've done and I do enjoy working here. But there's a fundamental problem. And that is that every day, either on my way into work or on my way home, I get harassed by the police. And that is... That's a terrible ordeal. Either me or my friends or my family or my co-workers or my parents or somebody is always being harassed for some or other ridiculous apartheid law. Mm. And uh, so he said to me, and that really shook me up quite a lot and opened my eyes. He said, for me, it's always going to be freedom first and work second. Uh, and, and and instead of firing me, I've decided, okay, this is now the beginning of my learning journey. Um, I had successfully dropped out of university already. Mm -hmm. And I said, right, you're going to have to teach me everything there is to know about South African politics and about race relations. Mm. And that's and that was my, my sort of beginning of the journey and my interest and fascination on race. Have you ever considered going into politics? No, I, I don't think, you know, because I would never be able to lie with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, no good at that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> yeah, is that, difficult. That, yeah, there's a certain skill that you need for that. Um, but yes, I, I, I've always, I've never been active in politics. In other words, I haven't picked up a gun or I haven't done anything to sabotage or blow up a building or mm -hmm. anything like that. I was a little bit, I think I'm a bit of a devout practicing coward uh -huh. when it comes to that. But but um, I, I decided that I was going to try and make the changes that I could through the businesses that I was running. Mm -hmm. That was my, my way of trying to make a difference no matter how small it was. But yeah. you mentioned earlier one of your passions being building South Africa. How far do you still think we need to go? Yeah, okay. Well, I think we have a long journey ahead. But for me, my interest, as I say, is in race. So I, I feel, and I feel quite strongly, that race is still one of our biggest, if not the biggest, challenge that we face in South Africa. And it's one of the things that is not being sufficiently addressed. Uh, I know for reasons that are, it's too sensitive, it's overwhelmingly difficult, uh, we're never going to make a difference, we can't change, and, and there's a million reasons why we're not doing what we should be doing. So that's one of the areas that I'm focusing on heavily at the moment, is I'm in the process of starting what we call a racial healing movement, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to be focused around how we can heal people particularly from the psychological damage that has been caused and created over the years 
over all the 300 years of, of what we call systemic racism. And we haven't solved a lot of these problems. You know, we've tried quite hard to, um, to give people economic empowerment, which is also not working too well. Mm-hmm. But, but they, we haven't done much at all in the area of psychological empowerment. That's the one that we want to start working on, is trying to help people to understand why we are such a polarized nation. How did we get to be like this? Why are we struggling to ever do anything together? Why is there always different views from different race groups? And then we could go on the, the whole day. In fact, I'm going to be writing a book. I'm starting, I've been doing the research. I'm going to be writing my fourth book now. Um, and, and it'll be called Racial Healing in South Africa. Yeah, so. Ian, just a quick question. We had Wayne Divinage from OTA as one of our guests recently. and. One yes. of the things that he said was we he believes that we are much more united than we think we are. And looking at how we celebrated the Springboks victory has just shown how we can get together and celebrate in the streets, at the airport, wherever. Um, yes. Do you disagree with him on that point? I agree to a point. Um, I agree that we were able to celebrate and unify around the rugby team. But unfortunately, we we did that as well in 2019, and there was no real impact on, on anything else in the country. So yes, it's, it's, a, it's a euphoric moment, and it's wonderful to see it, and the unity is just amazing. But it doesn't, it doesn't filter through into the economy, doesn't filter through into business, and that's where we're having all the troubles, is, is that we're not acting like that. We have a nice reason because everybody loves sport, but when it comes to, to the hugely unequal society that we live in, um, I'm sure you know that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world um, by some distance, and we're not solving those problems. So, yes, it's nice to unify around rugby, but a lot more work needs to be done before we can say we're doing well in terms of unifying this very polarized country of ours. But it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting book. When are you planning to publish it? Uh, it will be published, I'm hopeful, around about May next year, April, sure. May, somewhere around there. Yeah. That is very quick. So, Ian... I suppose you never get days when you feel that you would rather want to stay in bed with your head under a pillow. Very, very seldom, Christelle. Very, very seldom. I, I can't remember a day like that unless I was feeling sick or something. Uh-huh. But uh, I, I can't. I, I love what I do. You know, after I sold Sorbet, there was a, a sense of my family said, maybe I should retire and, you know, just sit back and, I don't know, read the newspaper or whatever. Play some balls. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, uh, I think I retired for an afternoon nap, uh-huh. and then, and then carried on, and then started the Hatch Institute almost immediately, because I, I need to work. I find it very stimulating. I'm I'm seventy years old now, so I'm kind of retirement age, but I have no no intention of slowing down at this stage of my life. Very very impressive. What would be the, if you do get days where 
you do feel a bit not so energized as normal. What would be the fun and exciting ways that you use to regroup, refocus, and rejuvenate your soul? Hmm. Yeah, that's quite an interesting one. I, I tried. I tried. Except to, for massage. Except for massage, that that would be a wonderful way. Um, but I, I try to do exercise, uh, and you know, three or four times a week if I can. I don't always manage that, mm-hmm. but that that helps me. It you know, keeps me a little bit more positive. Mm-hmm. I do an enormous amount of reading and stuff, uh, which I always enjoy. But um, and and then of course my my best time, if you want to know my really happy time, is when I'm out in the bush and. Mm-hmm. And watching wildlife, yeah, that that is my best. So I go uh, two or three times a year into the bush and spend some time there, and 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 it's really that's very in, sort of rejuvenating for me and invigorating. I come back ready for more. I believe that on the topic of exercise and loving nature, you went on a walking safari three months after your hip replacement. Yeah, that was a bit of a miracle. Um, I, I didn't expect that to happen. I thought it would take me at least six to nine months before I could do that. But I suppose the the miracles of of, of modern medicine and mm-hmm. uh, you know you have a hip replacement. They make you stand up on on the first afternoon. Just after the op, you have to stand up, um, and they make you walk the next day, and then they give you enough exercises and physio and things to do. And within three months, I was able to go and walk. Uh, I think it, the walk on the first day of the walk was about eight kilometers in the bush. I was mm-hmm. able to do that. Yeah, so that was very nice. Yeah. And the next day was six kilometers. Yeah, that's right. You've you've done your research <laughs> well. <laughs> oh, there's Good. a lovely well. friend called Google. Ah, yes. Okay. But Google also <laughs> tells me that there are grandchildren. Do you still have enough energy left to spend time with them? Uh, yeah, I'm, I must say that's where I'm kind of falling short a bit. I don't think I see them enough. I would really like to see them more. I've got six now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd really love to see them more than I do. But I, I try wherever I can. Fortunately, two of my children are still here with, with their five children combined. Mm-hmm. And they live with, and they live within a kilometer of where I live. So we we are very close to each other. It's just my youngest daughter who now lives in London that I only get to see, you know, obviously less often. That's super sad. Would you ever consider leaving South Africa? No, no, no. I I can't leave this country. This is my country, for better or for worse, as they say. You know, I'm never going to give up. I try and I try and keep a, a positive attitude uh, and, and try and visualize what this country could look like one day and um, you know with with all this and uh, reversing all of the trauma and dramas and the corruption and the poverty and the crime and where we have a country that is really you know worth living in and fit for human consumption at the moment uh, it's, it's very sad and, and a little bit depressing but i never lose hope because i feel that Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. So we keep hopeful and uh, we keep positive and try and do whatever we can. You know, it's when you sit back and moan about everything, that's that's not great. 
But if you're trying to do something, no matter how small it is, and if it's if we're able to transform people's minds, even one person at a time, to try and build a united South Africa, um, then we then we must do that, and that's that's what I'm determined to keep doing for as long as I can. As far as I know, on the part of United South Africa and working on race relations. You work mostly in the corporate space where you reach many, yeah. many people. Is there, do you have any plans on franchising that so that more people can get to your message? Yeah, yeah. So, so not, not within the Hatch Institute, um, but what we're doing, this racial healing movement that I want to start, that will be quite a, a large-scale operation if we can get it off the ground. We can obviously need some funding and stuff you know, from the foundations and corporates, which we're working on at the moment. But but that's where we'll scale it and to try and get to as many people as possible. So it'll be in companies, but also in, in uh, public organizations, NGOs, NPOs, and just also general individuals who want to, to participate in these programs. Would that be if you think of the next three to five years and what you still want to achieve within the next three to five years? Would that be part of it? Very much so. Very, very much so. In fact, that, that's kind of my, my last sort of big um, initiative that, I, that, that I'd like to do. I think after that, I think when I get to age 75 and beyond, I probably need to start slowing down a bit and taking it easy, but the next five years, um, I'm still going to give it my best shot. That sounds super, super inspiring. Ian, just if you could be 20 years old again, would you change anything and what would it be? Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Going to I, music. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I can't think of too many things that I would like to do differently to what I've done. I, I did so many different things and I've learned and I've had the good experiences and the bad ones. But but what I find now is, is you know, this thought that when I was young, my teachers were old and they taught me about the past. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I'm old, my teachers are young and they teach me about the future. And so that is... You know, I think I should have been a little bit more in tune with what was going on. I was a bit naive. I suppose we were protected mm-hmm. in South Africa, particularly as white people. We were very protected and we didn't really know what was going on. And so I was not only privileged from a lifestyle point of view, but I was very privileged that at the age of 22, I was able to start seeing the other side of South Africa. And I was given a, a lens into what was happening there in, in the townships and things like that. For very, very few of my white friends and colleagues ever had that opportunity. And so some of them still to this day do not really know what happened in this country, mm. which is one of our biggest challenges. We, we, we live in a lot of, of blissful ignorance about the, the, the extent of the discrimination and the, you know, and the and the injustice and things like that over the years that has caused a lot of damage in this country and is still 
feeling the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we've got a younger generation that were brought up without that or with much Correct. less injustices. And yes, in, indeed. Indeed, that, that is the case. But there are also now we, we get the, a bit of a, a different scenario with young white people in particular who are feeling now that they are the ones being discriminated against and mm-hmm. that there's reverse racism. Uh, and, and that is a difficult scenario. But unfortunately, we, we have to do what we have to do. We have to redress the imbalances of the past. And even while those people were not responsible, they, they weren't there at the time, you know, and, and, and they don't want to be blamed for the sins of their fathers. But the reality is that they are still the beneficiaries of the past. And that, that is something they need to understand and may have to compromise at some point in time in their lives to try and create that equality that will reduce the massive gap that we have in South Africa between the haves and the have-nots. Well, maybe we'll have more entrepreneurs seeing that they can't find jobs in the corporate world. So Exactly. Exactly, and that's what I'm, I'm encouraging them to do. A massive yeah. opportunity for our youngsters to yes. go into entrepreneurship. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Ian, you mentioned that you're an avid reader. What would be your number one book that you can recommend for an entrepreneur out there? Wow. Well, okay, that, that's another tough one. Except there's so your many. own books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my book would be one. And in terms of the best books that I've ever read, oh, there's, there's lots of them. Um, there's, I, I can name about five. Mm-hmm. Um, I Write What I Like. I Write What I Like by Steve Biko. Mm-hmm. I learned so much about what's going on in this country from him. Uh, the Mind of South Africa by a guy called Alistair Sparks that teaches you a proper history of South Africa and you understand exactly what's been happening here. And then from a business point of view, obviously I think most most people know Simon Sinek mm-hmm. and, and, and his wonderful book called Start With Why, you know, understanding why you're in business, just not so much how and what. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing woman by the name of Brene Brown Mm-hmm. who has written some great books, and one of them is called Dare to Lead. It's one of the best leadership books I've read in a long time. And then finally, there's a book called Radical Candor uh, by a woman called Kim Scott in America, and, and she, she talks about how to be, how to give and receive feedback, how to speak openly and directly, but with compassion, most people in South Africa do not know how to deal with confrontation in the workplace, and that's often exacerbated by race. So this book teaches you that you must be direct and you must speak your mind, but do it in a way that doesn't harm the other individual and you know, do it with compassion and empathy. So, so those are some of the books that I would strongly recommend. I can hear that you read quite a lot and haven't taken up bowls yet. No, no, bowls are not for me. Uh, that's an old man's game and I'm not old yet. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, 
there's a there's a saying by, by, by um, Clint Eastwood, the actor, you know. Uh-huh. They asked him how does he continue to be active in the film industry well into his 80s. And he said, I don't let the old man in. Uh-huh. And that's and I've learned from that. And I'm not I'm trying my best not to let the old man in and and keep going before I start acting like an old man. Well, I think the nice thing is, the older you get, the more you can act like a child, and nobody thinks anything of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they forgive you for, yeah, for the little mishaps. Absolutely, absolutely. Ian, just some in summary, some wise words for our entrepreneurs out there that want to start a business, or they're feeling down and out. What would be your big inspirational words to them? Uh, I think from an entrepreneurial point of view, there are four characteristics that people need to be successful as an entrepreneur. Um, the first one would be, would be intuition. Intuition is the ability to know when something is right, even though you don't have the evidence to prove it. And so... You, you have to believe in what you're trying to do. You've got to really believe it and know that what you're doing is right. And then if you're, not, if you're making mistakes, then know that you must keep tweaking until you get it right. So that's the one thing. The second thing is you need, you need uh, not to have a, a fear of failure. You can't have a fear of failure as an entrepreneur because then you will never do half of the things that you need to be doing because you'll be afraid of what might happen if you fail. Thirdly, you need courage. Courage is definitely important, and you need to be able to hold your head uh, when everyone else around you is losing theirs. Um, and, and when things go bad, instead of retreating into your shell, is, is to continue to be bold and, and look out going forward and not be afraid. So courage, very, very important. And then finally, determination for the long haul is that these things are very, and there's no such thing as a quick, easy way to riches. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that, that's a myth. Forget about that. It's a long, hard slog, and you've got to keep your head down, and you've got to keep believing, and you need the values, and you need the purpose. You need to do all the right things, and, and it'll come through in the end. But as soon as you start doubting yourself and retreating and, 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 and focusing more on, on profit than on people, uh, then, then you're going to struggle. So always put people first before profit because the people are the ones who are going to be doing the serving. And if you serve well, the profit will always follow. But if you don't have a strong culture, it'll be toxic and they will never go out there and serve their customers to the best of their ability. So when you have a bad culture, the people that really suffer are the customers. And so just, yeah, those are some of the things that I could possibly share now wow. in terms of being an entrepreneur. Wow. That is definitely very, very powerful. Intuition, fear of failure, courage and determination. The magic yep. numbers to the lotto. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, Chris. yeah.